ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. West Australian author Michael Trant writes his books while sitting in a pretty unusual office. Many of his ideas come to him while he's driving the tractor. Michael has a notepad and a pen in the tractor cab and uses audio software to fine-tune his book manuscripts while he's doing laps of the paddock. It's not surprising that recordings of his best-selling books have become a big hit with many farmers and truck drivers who are also spending hours behind the wheel. Michael's stories are set in rural WA, where he's done a range of jobs, from farmer to boat designer and fly-in, fly-out worker. His latest book, No Trace, has just been released, and Michael has been shortlisted for the prestigious West Australian Writers Fellowship. Not bad for a bloke who didn't quite know what he wanted to do when he finished school. Hello, Michael. Hey, Sally. How are you going? Very well. Uh, Michael, What's what do you think it is about driving the tractor that kind of puts your mind in the right frame to come up with ideas for your books? I'm a horrible daydreamer, so it works really well. There's These days, pretty big paddocks and everything's auto-steered, um, all GPS guidance, so you're sort of just sitting in this machine just watching things and making sure everything's working how it should be and everything's going out at the right way. So there's a, there's a lot of thinking time and for me, I can sort of daydream and just plan ideas and just try and stew on things because with my writing, I'm not that good of a plotter and a planner. I've just sort of got to write it as I'm work it out as I'm writing it. These tractors now, Michael, they're they're huge, and as you're saying, a lot of them are, are GPS um, guided. They're they're very very technical, but in some ways, you do less than you might have done 30 years ago driving a tractor. Yeah, I, I sort of consider myself fairly fortunate that I, when I first started on a family farm, it was all it was all little gear. Like you were you were steering these things all day, and it. It was quite tiring. Even though you're just sitting there, you are concentrating all day. It'd be much like driving a truck. Like you can't just zone out. You are. You, you're, hand, you're going round and round. You're, you're trying to keep the thing as efficient as possible. You're trying to cover as much ground without missing bits and, you know, spraying. You're concentrating. You're flicking things on and off and going around trees and power poles and everything. And I've sort of followed the progression in technology from the one of the first auto steer systems for a farm I was working on to like nowadays where, you know, it's all pretty... It's all pretty technical, and once the once the system's set up, it's yeah, it's quite good. It's very efficient, and it just allows for you can work longer hours because you're not you're not so tired and just wrung out because you've been concentrating all day. Michael, sometimes you have a, a dog in the cab with you. What's the dog think when you're talking to yourself or going back through your manuscripts? <laughs> it's funny. He does look up every now and then, <laughs> wondering what the hell I'm talking about, and sort of. Especially sometimes, you know, I like to play back a couple of interviews I've done to see if I could have done a bit better job. And he, he gives me this weird look because he can hear my voice, but my mouth's not moving. So, he, <laughs> yeah, I need, I wanted a little tractor, mate. Um, so, yeah, ended up with a little Kelpie cross pup and he's quite happy to lay in the cab and try and eat my lunch when he can. And, yeah, <laughs> just, just sort of something to do. He runs around when we get out and chuck him back in the cab and keeps him happy. Whereabouts did you grow up in WA, Michael? I grew up on a wheat and sheep farm in Eniaba, which is sort of about three, four hours north of Perth on the Brand Highway. Most people ask where it is, and I said, well, if your car's ever blown up and overheated on the Brand Highway, chances are you're at any other because it was just a hot, hot, hot place in summer and windy. And But it was a, it was a good little spot. Um, yeah, grew up with a bunch of other farm kids in the area. It was back when, you know, farms were three and 4,000 acres and there was four or five families on a big block of land, you know, surrounded by roads. And But nowadays, I think where, where I grew up, 
that entire block of land is now owned by two families when there, I think there was five or six there before. Were you big into farming as, as a kid? No, no, I was not a farm kid at all. While my mates were out riding motorbikes and driving, hacking utes around the paddock and digging cubby holes and all that sort of stuff, I was quite happy to get my book and grab an apple and go sit on the bed and read the book and eat the apple and mum would come look. I used to eat it with a potato peeler, like peel off a slice and put it in my mouth and chew on that and turn the page and peel another slice and mum would come in at five thirty, six o'clock looking for a potato peeler and that's when I knew it was time to go and do the chores and yeah. Why do you think you were a bookworm? It was always encouraged, like we always had huge amounts of books as kids from, you know, sort of little golden books and there was just this big collection of Enid Blyton's and all these other sort of stories you read as you as you're a kid, and then as you as you grow up, you progress to other titles. And when I got down to boarding school, sort of went from this tiny little primary school library where you could get one book out at a time to this massive sprawling building just filled with books of all sorts, and you could get ten out at once. Was there some seed of that when you were a really little kid that you might want to do that <laughs> later on? I can remember telling Dad that I didn't need to know how to do whatever thing he was showing me to do on the farm because I was going to be an author when I grew up. Um, I think there was one time, Dad tells a story all the time, you know, I think we'd gone around to the neighbour's farm. There was like a, um, a group effort to slaughter a few pigs and, you know, home kill bacon and whatever. And so all us young boys were there sort of helping out and fascinated by the process, but I wasn't. I was disgusted by the whole thing and we're sort of digging this hole to chuck the offal in and stuff and Dad just says, I'm sitting there going, I'm not going to be a farmer. There's no way I'm going to be a farmer. And sure enough, I turned out to be a farmer. It's funny and then it went full circle. I ended up becoming an author. So, it's yeah, it's weird how life works out sometimes. None of it was planned. It's just sort of ended up. You were saying that you were sent away to boarding school once you got to secondary school. What was that like for you, going from home into a, a big dormitory environment and a much, much bigger school? Imagine 30 or 40 13-year-old boys running around this one boarding house as what, while there's another 250, 300 kids from all ranges up to from year 8 through to year 12. I mean, I was, I was lucky. Year, year 7 was still a primary school year and it's not long become a high school year. I would have died down in Midland, at, you know, when I was 12 years old if I'd been sent down there. It would have just been terrifying. I was, I was um, probably not that confident as a kid when I was that young, but that extra year certainly made a big difference to me. And it was still quite terrifying. You know, you walk, first time walking into Governor Sterling, there's just hundreds of all these kids walking with you. You don't know any of them. The year 12s looked like men. I swear when I was a year eight, these, the year 12s were shaving and deep voices. <laughs> and then when I got to year 12, we all looked like we did when we were in year eight. I sort of <laughs> couldn't, couldn't quite work out how that happened. But, yeah, but it, was, it was good. Like the boarding school we went to was called Swan Lee and it was its own separate hostel along the banks of the Swan River. It was a lovely spot. Like there was paddocks and fields and, you know, kids could take their horses there if they were, if they were horse riders. There was kayaking and every sport under the sun and then they sort of had they catered for the the non-sporty kids as well. You could do computer club, chess club, camera club, all that sort of stuff, uh, book clubs. And it was a really well set up boarding school, but then we would bus into Midland and go to the public Governor Sterling Senior High School. And, you know, there was kids from all sorts of backgrounds in there. So there was, there was interesting times, that's for sure. So as someone who was going to go on to become an author, what did you think about the subject of English at that stage? I hated it with a passion because I was always in trouble my essays were too conversational and they were making me read these books I had no interest in reading. Like by then I'd discovered Stephen King and 
Bryce Courtney and Wilbur Smith and all these, and you know, fantasy, the Dragonlance saga, all these fantastical stories of dragons and spears and dwarves and Lord of the Rings and this, that, and the other. And I was having a ball reading it, and then they go and throw something like, um, with all due respect to Tim Winton, Cloud Street gets thrown on the desk and said, "Right, you've got to read this in a, two weeks, and then give us a thousand-word essay on it." You read Bryce Courtney, and that really grabbed your attention. Yeah, Power of One, I think, was the first one I read. And it's one of those books that I read over and over again. It was just this massive, sprawling adventure through through Africa. And just the, I think what really caught my attention it was the first time that there was this, I'd read a story with all this these brutal truths in it. Like, you know, it's, some parts of that story are fairly brutal. And later on when I discovered Will Smith, the same thing, you know, it's quite, it's quite stories are quite brutal and nothing sort of sugar-coated over it. And I think... That has sort of stuck with me. There's a few things I describe in Wild Dogs and No Trace, and I don't put them there for you know for for attention or for whatever. But that some of those things are just the real, the realities of the area that I'm describing, and you could leave them out and sort of make the make the book a lot nicer and sweeter and stuff. But that that wouldn't be authentic. I think when you read a story and it just doesn't ring right to you because in real life that doesn't happen. And it doesn't matter if it, if it's a story about, say, dragons and fairies and elves and dwarves and whatever, if the way those characters react and the actions that they do doesn't seem like something that real people would do, then it sort of it takes it away a little bit. It does, Like I say, it doesn't matter if they're riding along the back of a dragon and you know, throwing spears or, or whatever it is. I think the interactions between the characters and the, and the and the emotions that they go through still have to be based in realism, and that's sort of what I try and do with my characters. They're all most of them are sort of I've drawn bits and pieces from real life people, and you know, change a few names and a few descriptions. But the way they talk and react is usually based on you know people that I've met and know, and little phrases that they say that stuck stuck in my mind. Michael, when you left school, you had thoughts of going into music for a while, but you went back to the farm. What was that like for a kid who hadn't really wanted to go into farming? I think the coming home on the farm for a couple of years was sort of the default. It was always a fallback. When I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left school, I thought, well, this music thing's all right. And we were in a you know, school band and going to competitions and things. like We never won anything, but it was enjoyable and fun. I thought, well, maybe maybe I could do this. So I, I sat the audition to, do, to come down to TAFE and do like a music it wasn't just music, it was a music industry, so it was everything from sound production to performance and all, all the stuff in between that goes with it. And I was accepted, but then I basically chickened out because the idea of living in Perth did not appeal to me at all, and so that left me with the fallback to go back to the farm. So I thought, I'll go back to the farm for a couple of years. You know, most of my mates were, my primary school mates were doing the same thing, so we basically did that for a couple of years and went through a couple of stressful years. I think one year was quite wet and flooded. I think it was 99. Dad and I sort of butted head quite a few times. I could see this wasn't going to work very well. So I thought I'd better go do something else and get a trade behind me. And then I decided to do building design and drafting up at Jordan TAFE. The family farm, how long had that been in the family for? I think Dad's father bought that in, I might be remembering this wrong, but uh, 1970, I think he'd bought that. And I think Dad was sort of 16 or 17. I might be wrong about that. But yeah, Dad basically, so Pa and Nan and Pa had been up in Jordan farming up there in a smaller block for quite a while and they sold that and moved down to Eniaba on this relatively new farm. They bought it off another farmer, but I think the farm was only 10 years old as a war service block. It was sort of only half developed. And so then they, they spent the next few years sort of getting that up and running and um, then Nan and Pa retired and the two brothers, Dad and Brian, took it over from him and then they went farming together and then Dad ended up buying 
Brian out and, yeah, ended up farming in his own right with my mum and raised four kids on the farm and it was always there as an option if any of us wanted to come back to it but sort of none of us ended up um, coming back and um, when mum and dad separated a sort of few years later, dad ended up selling the farm and um, sort of travelled around a bit and they both went off and did separate things and now dad's ended up back in Three Springs working for a farmer and um, I sort of <laughs> I ended up with him there with him too. So, yeah, weird how things turn out like that. It, it can be an interesting time, uh, Michael, when young blokes finish school and come onto the farm with dad, that relationship, like as the young guy... You're strong, you're full of energy, but Dad's kind of been running the place for quite a while. What what was it like for you and your dad negotiating all of that on a daily basis? I mean, I wasn't really I wasn't really that clued up about. It. I mean, I did a lot of learning that first year I was home because, like I say, I'd only sort of been dancing around the edges before. You know, driving tractors here and there, and helping out with sheet work and whatever when I was home from school. But come home full time on the farm, right? This is how we're doing it, and. I didn't really know too much about whether what we were doing was the right way or the best way or should we be doing this and that and the other. And Dad was keen to get us involved and, you know, showed us how to do the books and we we were going to field days and courses and things like that for land management and all the stuff that was going on at the time. And it is always interesting when you've got young blokes working with their old man and, you know, Dad's always done it this way and young blokes keen to try this new technology and, you know, this, that and the other and, I can just imagine the arguments when auto steer first come out. You know, why why are we going to spend ten grand on a thing that steers the tractor? I've been steering the tractor for the last fifty years, and but then you sort of get them into it, and they're oh, this is much more efficient. This is better. Yeah, this is a great way to do it. So yeah, it's definitely interesting. And there's there's always that pressure. Might not be so overstated. There's always an implied expectation that you know someone is going to take over the farm, especially if the farm in questions. You know, if you've been if it's been in the family for four or five, six generations. That's a huge amount of pressure to come home to, and because if you're not interested in farming, you, <laughs> you're not going to make it. Like you've got it. It's, you've you're either got it. you are or you aren't. Right? Yeah, it's it's not just a job you can turn up and put the hours in and then go home. Like it's it's twenty four seven. And yeah, so if you're if you're if you're a young bloke and this this farm has been in your family for the last hundred years and you're just not interested and there's no one else to come along. That'd be a hard conversation to have, I think. Like Dad always said he'd support me. Mum and Dad always said they'd support us in whatever I did, and they have. Michael, you, you took some time out um, to do a course and you spent a bit of time designing boats and then farm life beckoned again. And before long, you took over two farms in the Geraldton area with your then wife. What, what drew you back into it again? It took a couple of things. Like farming was definitely Gemma's passion. She was a farm girl. She was always going to be a farmer and, you know, own, owning a sheep station was her goal. And once we sort of, you know, once our relationship had got to the point where it was, you know, it was getting serious and we were going to be together for all, you know, at the time for, for forever, that was the plan, we worked towards building this goal. And like I'd been at the boat builders for about three years and it was getting tedious just sitting in front of a computer all day, um, drawing up these plans. and it was, it was an interesting job. I loved it. It was great, but you know, the pay wasn't that great and I could make more money sitting on a tractor for a farming another farmer and just basically, yeah, sitting on a tractor doing not much. <laughs> and I could, I could make more money doing that than sort of stressing out over boats and plans and dealing with naval architects and um, boat surveyors and stuff like that. So I ended up resigning and going off and doing that again. Uh, I think it was about 2005 Myself and Gemma and her parents went farming together as a full-blown partnership. Um, her parents had got out of farming and then decided that was they wanted to get back into it again. So, yeah, 2005, we bought a farm out at Walkaway and 
Gemma had already had a little 500 acre block that she was running and as well as working for another farmer. And, you know, we were working off thing. But in 2005, we decided, right, we're going farming in our own right again and bought this, uh, bought this block out at Walkaway and sort of put a hurried crop in and some sheep in on the first year and then sort of set ourselves up in 2006 to really kill the pig. We'd got all the finance. We're going to put this huge crop in. We'd leased another property. We'd leased cattle. We had just everything ready to go and then it didn't rain for two years. <laughs> so 2006, 2007 were two of the worst droughts I think WA's ever seen or close to it if they weren't. So that was interesting. And, yeah, we, we managed to get through that and one of the good things that come about that is it got us into feedlotting because we needed to fatten our own stock and we were, we could see everyone selling off all their sheep so we thought we'll buy their sheep pretty cheap because that's what you do when it's a drought. you just got to get rid of the poor animals before they starve. So we, we were buying them in and feedlotting them and then we were extending the feedlot and we were buying steel off this cattle feedlotter just down the road and he his cattle feedlot was Aquis accredited for live export, depoting cattle before they went down on the ships. And he asked us, what, what are you doing with all this steel? I said, oh, we're building this sheep feedlot. He said, what you want to do is you want to build it to hold goats, get registered, and you want to depot goats because he said, everyone asked me to do it and I am not interested, so there's a demand there. So we thought, oh, that sounds good. So we did. We went through the whole process of getting our feedlot accredited with AQUIS, Australia Quarantine Inspection Service, and we were registered as an accredited depot for export sheep. So what happened was the buyers would go and buy sheep off other people's farms and on a designated day they'd come to us, we'd receive them, um, inspect them, sort them out, get them in their pens, all, all even lines and stuff and feed them and basically do whatever needed doing to these animals for five, seven, ten days, whatever the important country, importing country's requirements was. They'd be inspected by Aquas vets and third-party vets and then on a designated day about a week later, about 15, 20, 30 big trucks would roll in and we'd load them all up and they'd, they'd go down the wharf onto the ship. So it got us into that and it was quite a good little side earner, we were doing it. We we're doing the normal farming stuff as well, a few other things. So it was really, really got us out of trouble with the sort of pressure we found ourselves under with the drought. And then from there, we were able to go and put an offer in on Gabion Station in 2009, I think it was, and it came off. So in a very short amount of time, we'd, we'd gone from one little 500-acre block to 500 acres, a couple of thousand acres, and a dirty great sheep station out in the Algoo, which was great and it worked really well. Um, and this this station, Michael, a Gabion, this is actually bigger than the whole of the ACT, is that right? Yeah, I think, I might remember this wrong again, but I think it was about 680,000 acres or 230,000 hectares. It was a it was a fair chunk of dirt. It was, I think it was one of the bigger stations in the area. Uh, we had a back, the Taiwanese backpacker, Jenny, she, she'd worked out that Five Gabion stations was the equivalent to the landmass of Taiwan, which had, I don't know how many people, 26, 28 million people living in it, and there was six of us on this place, and it just blew her mind. Um, it blew everyone's mind who went out there for a look. blew our mind. Like, it was just, it was nuts. But I would have loved to have seen the place in its heyday, you know, when it was effectively a small town. Like, it had a, it's got a storeroom and there was stores and old logbooks of the purchases of, you know, workers come in and get their pound of flour and whatever else. It was just a fascinating place to explore. And what about your your own family's connection with this station way back to your pa? That was freaky. Um, I had no idea about this. But so Dad's dad, pa, he'd come off come over from England as, you know, a 10-pound pomp or whatever, and he'd, he'd sort of swander around Perth for a few weeks, I think, and then he ended up getting a job and he jumped on a little motorbike and drove up to Yalgoo and became a waterman on the station. And then I was telling Dad years later, long after he'd passed, that, oh, we've just put an offer in a station. Dad's like, oh, which one? I said, Gabion. 
He said, you're joking. I said, no, why? He said, that's the station Pa worked on. I went, oh, no way. Couldn't believe it. So I'd be driving around doing water runs and there's this old handmade concrete trough, you know, all stoned and concrete and lined and everything. I said, I wonder if Pa made that. And it's just a shame he died when I was 16 and I would have loved to have been able to pick his brains about what it was like because he would have been there in the heyday when it was a full-on wool, wool sheep station. So, But, yeah, it was just funny. I couldn't believe it when Dad told us. A lot of people in the city, Michael, can read the headlines about when farming and station areas are in drought for a prolonged period of time. But what's it actually like when you're living it, that kind of lump in the throat frustration when things are just not going the right way and the rain is not coming and you're doing those awful jobs that you have to do when it's very, very dry? It's very, very, very hard. Um, I think the opening chapter of Wild Dogs, Gabe is talking about the slow burn. It's the slow burn that gets them. Um, like other, there's always problems in farming, and you know it's going to happen. There's, you're always going to have a drought at some point. At some point, something's going to flood, and at some point, you're probably going to have a fire. The floods and the fires they happen so fast that it's generally not time to worry too much. Like you've got the stress at the moment, but you're just you're that focused on dealing with it and getting it out and saving what you can and sort of fixing it up afterwards. But droughts. They just linger and most farmers are eternal optimists, which you sort of got to be, but so you see the weather forecast and, you know, there's a chance of rain coming up in two weeks' time, long-term forecast, however accurate they may or may not be. So you've got this mob of sheep that have been hanging on, you've been hand-feeding them and you think, oh, I should really sell them but I'm not going to get anything for them. And if it rains next week, you know, we can hang on for another month till the feed comes up. So we'll just we'll hang on to them and... We've been breeding these things up for the last 10 years, getting our bloodlines exactly how we want them, and and then it doesn't rain. But the next forecast says there's a probably stronger chance that it's going to rain, and the whole process just keeps repeating. And in the meantime, you're spending money on feed and all these things that you sort of haven't budgeted for. You've, you've spent money. If you're a cropper, you've got all this money in the ground, like you've bought fertiliser and seed and chemical and fuel, and you've done all the work, and then it doesn't rain. Oh, well, do, I, do I put that extra paddock in? But it hasn't rained yet. But if it does rain, that'll help pay for the stuff I've already spent, even though the crop yields are going to be lower. It's just a horrible, horrible slow burn, and I would not wish it on anyone. And so, yeah, we went through that, and we got through it. Like, it was it was, it was, was not fun. It was not pleasant. But we got through it, and every other farmer and business in the district was going through the same thing because the first thing you do when it doesn't rain is you shut the checkbook. So that's right. know, all, all the businesses that were sort of um, hanging on farmers, like you don't go in, you don't go out for dinner, you don't do any of these things. So if you're in a farming community, the whole community suffers. Um, but as I said, it's one of those things that you know is going to happen. You try and plan for it best you can. So if you're unfortunate enough to be able to put money aside, that's what you do. But if you're sort of starting off like we were, you're constantly spending money building the place up and up and up, getting it running to the level that you want it to. So yeah, I mean, we got through it and we, a few years later we'd sort of recovered and learnt, learnt from things from there and sort of got us onto a few different things that were really good and we picked up the station and, and the following year was the opposite. It was the best rain they'd ever had for a long time, so this station just burst to life. It was amazing. I remember driving around when we were looking at the place. It was coming off a fairly dry year, fairly few dry years actually, and it was just it was just bare earth and sticks, you know, and I'm, I remember looking at Gemma going, what the hell do these things eat? And then it rained and we went, oh, that's what they eat. That's what happens when it rains. All this bush just comes to life and you've got wildflowers and spinifex and wandering grass and just everything just goes nuts. Beautiful birds everywhere. Like I've seen massive great flocks of green finches and corellas and just everything flying around, just life. Just, I don't know where all the life comes from, but it does and it spurts to life. 
Problem was, um, all this life, and we had no, there was no, the place was heavily, like, light, very lightly stocked. And then the next year, big, big mob of dry lightning come over and the whole lot burnt. <laughs> so we had this, we had this massive bushfires a couple of years later and I think, I think about 80,000 hectares of this station burnt. And it was the same for the whole district. Like, we weren't the only ones. There was other stations in the exactly same boat. But, yeah, we got fairly heavily stung with that. So that was another, just another um, one of the battles that you deal with. And same thing, we got through it and carried on. Broadcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Sally Sara. Find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Well, Michael, no sooner had you taken over Gabion Station when news broke that would have a, a crippling effect on the property and the industry. You were sitting in front of the TV. What did you see? Yeah, we, we'd all sat down to watch this Four Corners report that we'd um, been told was coming and was, was not going to be a good thing. And, you know, we watched it and we were disgusted. Like we, we were blown away. We couldn't believe that that was going on. The images were, were shocking for sure. I think we actually rang up our stock agent and tore strips off him. And you know, and we, we weren't even cattle farmers. We, we were running sheep, but we knew it was going to have an effect and we knew that wasn't acceptable. We didn't expect that ban to happen so quickly and so overnight because that just created so many more problems for these poor cattle guys. Like there was ships half loaded and cattle on the wharf. And unless you've been in that industry, you cannot even begin to imagine the logistical nightmare of reorganising that whole scenario. And we didn't really know how bad it was until we got involved and we knew what is involved in um, the whole trucking and moving animals around because these animals still need feed and water at some point. Yes, they're off feed and water while they're being trucked and, you know, they're, they're dry spelled and everything else, but you can't just leave them sitting for two and three days while you try and get more trucks organised to shift them back out, you know. So there's feed and water waiting for them on the ships, but that all stopped. But we were sort of looking back, sitting on the outer, looking back, and we could just see this was going to have a massive effect on everyone. And, yeah, that's sort of how I ended up becoming sort of a bit of a voice in that export industry. With this issue all unfolding, you started um, blogging because they were trying to get more farmers onto the internet. What did you start blogging about? Uh, mostly it was um, just about what we were doing on the farm, just funny little amusing stories about uh, I think the example I always say is we were wielding up sheep yards one day, so I'd, I'd just write about what we were doing that day and, you know, all the things that go wrong when you're doing stuff like that and how when you're welding steel together, the current takes the most direct route from the from the rod to the earth clamp unless your wife's holding it and it seems to divert through her for some reason and <laughs> somehow that's my fault. So <laughs> it's just funny little things like that which a lot of people could relate to. But then every now and then I would write something serious, and a serious opinion piece on policy or, or something that I'd seen, you know, I'd just point out a few truths and they went really well because suddenly I was not joking and most of my social media content and blogging was just me being trying to be funny and just making people laugh because I, I do enjoy it when people laugh. At, no, everyone likes it when someone laughs at your joke and it's just nice to make people smile and have a good time. But then when you don't do that and you suddenly get serious, 
people do seem to sit up and take notice a lot more. And it gained quite the following, and that's sort of how I got into writing novels and it sort of progressed from there. I'd, I've stopped blogging now because, you know, I'm not in the game anymore and just seemed, just didn't quite seem genuine to be putting all these opinions out there when I'm not really involved too much. When you started this blogging, were you getting responses from far and wide? What really kicked it off, I'd, I'd done this stupid little, like, golden rules of farming. It was like the Murphy's Murphy's law of farming, you know, it's just what goes wrong when it does and how what can go wrong does go wrong, just these little one-liner things. And that went viral. We didn't, I didn't even know what the term viral meant at the stage, <laughs> but it went viral and everyone picked it up. And from there, they sort of read my other stuff and it managed to attract a following. And, and yeah, and then from there, someone said, oh, you should write a book. You like, you know, I like reading your stuff. You should write a book. So, We'd got into tourism out on Gabion Station. I thought, well, if I write a story roughly about what we're doing and self-publish it and, and people can buy it and read it and recognise some places and maybe some people and it went from there and then, yeah, it got picked up. That's quite a leap from, from blogging to, to writing a novel. Were, were you scared about making that leap or was there some confidence there that, look, I reckon I can do it? I wasn't scared because I had no expectations. Like it was just something I was doing in the evenings, you know, like knock off finish work, have, have your dinner and whatever, and then I'd just go in the office and just start writing. And sometimes it would be a blog post and other times it would just be scenes. And I just I did that for, I don't know, a couple of years, just off and on, not really too worried about, about it all. But then I, I got to the end and I thought I sort of re-read it back and I think I showed it to a couple of people. And I mean, I had no contacts in the writing world at that stage. It was just me having a go and I remember thinking, oh, this is there's something there is something here, and because I made all mistakes every writer makes, you know, I sent off the first draft of whatever publisher was taking unsolicited submissions and you know, in the wrong font, the wrong format, the wrong everything, and never heard back, unsurprisingly. And I sort of went back over it, and I ended up doing a a Kickstarter, like a crowdfunding thing, because there's no way I was going to waste our limited funds on this little pet project of mine. And so I created this Kickstarter thing for crowdfunding, which is effectively just pre-selling whatever it is you're doing. And in my case, it was a book and offered all these different levels of, um, you know, 10 bucks, you'll get an ebook when it comes out, 30 bucks, you get a signed copy, right up to, I think it was a thousand bucks, we'll get you a week on the station and I'll give you the grand tour sort of thing. And within no time, we'd raised $6,000. Like it was, the response was nuts. And it just blew me away that these people who I had never met, most of them I'd never met, would just, just back me into the hilt. And so that suddenly became a, a little bit of a weight of expectations. And then not long after that, Gemma and I separated and this manuscript just went in the drawer and I was up on the mines working in a catering crew up there and just sort of basically sorting, sorting life out for the next 12 months. But I had, I had this promise that I'd made that I was going to deliver this manuscript and I'd sort of sent off a message to all the backers saying, look, I'm very sorry, but, you know, life's taken an unexpected twist, so um, I'm happy to refund your money or, you know, if you're happy to wait, there will be something eventually, but I just don't know when. And everyone said, no, nope, that's fine, just keep it, it's all good. When you finally got a, a publishing deal, how exciting was that? It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. Um, I'd sent, using these funds, I'd sent this manuscript off to a, a manuscript assessor and he come back with a report saying, well, I don't really know what you want me to do with this because it's fine, it's great. I've, you know, this is, loved it. It's nice to read a story that's not a murder mystery, not crime, not not people just being nasty. It's just a lovely story about a family on a station battling the odds and elements. Yeah, sure, send it off. So I did, and I just went, holy crap. Um, <laughs> now what? That's that's terrifying. And so we went through the whole process, and it was fascinating. It was just brilliant to be able to learn how these books that I'd been reading all my life actually make it to the shelves, and it was a fascinating process. 
How important to you is it to write about what you know and where you you know, the places that you know very well? I think for me personally, well, for a start, it makes my life a lot easier because I don't have to research too much about stuff. There's probably a little bit of laziness in there. Like I would I'd really struggle to set a story in New York or even Queensland or you know, Sydney or just because I don't know those areas. I can't imagine what they're like. But you know your place, don't you? But I know my place. So if I'm describing, you know, if it's just a scene outside, it's just the little things that you may not realise if you've never been there. So just the way, like the way the air feels when a storm's building, um, just the little hum of insects in the background, um, the way a sound can travel, like you can hear a car and it can be miles away on a still day and you've got no idea where this car's coming from and all of a sudden you'll see dust. Think, oh, that's where he is. Yeah, just, just stuff like that. And I don't do it on purpose, but it's just that's what I see when I'm writing these scenes. And then when people who live in those areas read them, they go, oh, you've, you've nailed this. Like, the way you got that, how do you do that? So, well, I'm just remembering what it was like, you know. I just remember what it felt like when I was dangling off a windmill trying to fix the bloody thing in a 45-degree day because the sheep had no water. It's just I remember, that sort of stuff sticks with you. So, And, and the, the hardships that you'd experienced on the land and the challenges, how much of that went into this first book, Ridgeview Station, about what it's like just trying to hang on? I did what most authors do on their first book and basically wrote about stuff that I'd done and we'd done and what we were doing because I was only writing it just to see if I could and to give to tourists when they turned up at the station. I never really expected it to get a national audience. So it was a little bit, ooh. But, you know, every, all the characters in there, they are based on us. I mean, the family was the same, the same structure and the workers and everything else. It was just, I just made it a bit more exciting and a few near misses. But there was bushfires and bureaucracy getting in the way and just backpackers coming around and getting into adventures. And that was all based <laughs> on stuff that happened to us. And like I say, I just made it a bit more interesting. Um, but the people, the people who knew us could recognise sort of who I was writing about. The time that you spent working on the mines, how much of that was an inspiration for one of your lead characters, Gabe, uh, who traps uh, wild dogs? Uh, How much did you draw on that? It was more to do with the interaction between people from completely different cultures. I had my eyes opened a lot when I was working on the mines because, you know, I grew up in Enya, but it was a fairly small community, fairly sheltered community. Even when I was out in Geraldton, you know, we didn't mix too much with people outside of the farming community. And until you get out of that zone, your comfort zone that you know, and just go and meet people, like travel is the best thing you can do, I've since learned, to, just to get different perspectives on lives and things. Like I was fortunate enough to meet a fellow, a chef up at, <laughs> a chef up on one of the mine sites. And when I first saw this guy, I knew what to expect. I'd just come off a mine site working with two Indian chefs and this fellow come at me, black as black, goatee, dreadlocks, Big, big grin on his face, and I thought, yep, I can expect that. I stuck my hand out. G'day, mate, Michael. And he said, g'day, mate, this one. <laughs> he, was a, he was a Sri Lankan-born, Australian-adopted fella, and he'd been, in, he'd been in Australia since he was six months old or something, and we became great friends. And he was just really good at just questioning some of the things I might say or opinion I'd put out. He'd go, really? What, are you, what, are you, what is that? And it just opened my eyes to so much stuff, and I wanted that with Gabe and Amin, who is the Afghan refugee and wild dogs. And that was oh, that's what I wanted, that that shifting stereotypes and perceptions and just flipping them on their heads. There's a I do that a few times in Wild Dogs and also in No Trace, because I just I just find that when when people are not who you expect, it sort of it makes you stop for a minute and think, oh yeah. And I've experienced that 
just a very not, not even same comparison, but I remember I was getting some meat from the local butcher in Gosnells in the Perth suburb where I live, and I was in full farmer gear. I had my high vis on; it was filthy. I'd just finished doing whatever I was doing at home, but I was just wearing my work clothes and I was scruffy. I had my harvest or seed and beard or whatever, and my hair was long. I hadn't had a haircut for ages. And I know the butcher there quite well, and he asked me how my writing and my book was going. And I was talking, oh, you know, um, the next one comes out you know, in a few months and this, that, and the other. Just... And the lady sitting next to us, I could see her looking at me. <laughs> you didn't look like an author to her. This character, Gabe, it's interesting. I've been listening to it as an audio book. He, he doesn't have a lot to say, but you do get to hear his inner thoughts and he'll generally yeah. give someone one word and then you, yep. you hear what he's thinking. It, it's quite lovely to get inside his mind. Yeah, he is. He's a great character. I mean, he's he's based off probably three people, um, my father-in-law, Mike. That's where his wit and humour and dry dry cutting remark comes from and sort of Dasher, the fellow that was out at the station when we took over, he was he was very much the curt and very very impatient. It was lovely. I mean, I had a lot of time for Dash, and his knowledge was great. And but yeah, he could just he had no time for bullshit. <laughs> and, and then the um, sort of fellow we're working for, Spanner, he's about the same cut from the same mold, and just really good turns of phrase, and just they just make you laugh, and they'll do anything like you know they'll do anything for you once you're in that circle. But geez, don't ever piss them off because. <laughs> And, and Michael, as as someone called Sally too, I, I've got to ask you as well about your character Sal. She's mm-hmm. described as a thick-set woman who hadn't taken advantage of the sun uh, of the shade most of her life, with a voice as rough as her truck. There might be some Sallies <laughs> that launch a, a class action against you, Michael. Well, Sal, not Sally. It's different. It's, it's completely different. <laughs> I go by both. I, I, I hate naming characters because I'll guarantee it'll be someone that I know and I I've unconsciously used their name and. I just hate, like, Chase Fowler, the, the bad guy in Wild Dogs. There's no spoilers there. It's no, we soon learn who the bad guy is. There's no mystery. I called him Chase Hunter because he was a roo shooter and he was chasing after these fellas. So just, I just called him that because I couldn't come up with anything better. And then the name stuck. And then we were doing the edits. The editor said, oh, Chase Hunter, that's, yeah, he's, he's a roo shooter and he's chasing after him. That's a bit, I said, well, that's exactly why he's called that because I'm a lazy name writer and I couldn't think of anything better. So he said, oh, can we just change his surname? So I called him Chase Fowler, which is just a hunter of birds. So it's just, I, yeah, I don't like naming characters and I find every, every, every manuscript I've done, all the characters have the same first letter. Michael, what's it been like crossing over into this other world of authors and getting to meet them uh, when you've come from a different world? It's been absolutely amazing. I, as I said, when I moved down to Perth, I just had this publishing contract. The book had just come out, and all of these Perth authors—I don't know where they saw me—they just flocked to me. I was getting messages and Facebook comments, and just welcome aboard, welcome to the community. Um, a lot of lovely women. There's a lot of lovely um, women in Perth who are writing books, and they all come over and said good day. And now my my closest group of friends are a bunch of WA writers and this is you know this is how much my life has changed in the last 10 years or so if you'd told me 10 years ago my best mates would include two married gay guys a young muslim woman a retired doctor a young lesbian woman just my my circle of friends has just expanded exponentially i still got a very close tight knit group of friends i don't have many i don't have very many close friends but i would never have expected my current close friends to fall into those different categories of, you know, those different social circles. And the writing community in whole is just so supportive and so 
So they are so excited when you have success because they know how much work's gone into it. So I've seen very little negativity. Like everyone's excited for everyone else because, you know, rising tide lifts all ships sort of thing. So every writer is happy to support and cheer on every other writer. I don't see any jealousy and pettiness. It's just, it's just a lovely community to be part of. Michael, what have you learned from taking this chance, taking this leap from blogging to actually saying, I'm going to go and write a book and, and seeing it through? What have you learned from that whole thing? I think I've learned you've just got to persevere. And that goes for everything. Like, I mean, I've persevered. My, my first book was the first manuscript I'd published and it was I've written and it was picked up and published and I thought well this is easy and then it took five years before I had another one there was about five or six manuscripts in between Ridgeview Station and Wild Dogs and it was just the perseverance that kept us going and I mean like ex-wife's still out in her station that was her dream and she's persevered and managed to carry on too so it's just yeah it's just basically just hanging on and keep trying and just celebrating the little wins and learning what you can from the misses and just yeah, just persevere. That's 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 essentially it, it. It may not happen, but it definitely won't happen if you give up. That's true, isn't it? Mm. Have you had contact from readers around the world now picking up your books? Yeah, I've had a few, um, few in the UK and a couple of US people. Um, I mean, New Zealand. That's technically overseas, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, um, my partner Kylie, she's she's a Kiwi, so her family are right on board and they love it and. Um, Love reading about Australia and stuff, and because these books are very Australian, like they're very, very well. They're very. I say they're very Australian. They're very what Australia is perceived to be. I think most overseas people still think we all live out in the bush and don't realise that most of us live in the cities on the coast. But you know, it's, it's what people imagine when they they think of the outback. What have you learnt about the way that your imagination works? Do some of these ideas come quickly and easily or are you kind of your brain's clicking away while you're asleep and then things emerge? How would you describe it? Pure adrenaline and fear, I think, because it was just um, I just wrote and it didn't matter if I knew that it was rubbish and I probably was going to use it. I would keep writing this scene because it might create another idea that I could then follow. But I didn't go back and do that until I got to the end of this first draft of the manuscript and just basically persevered. But, yeah, I mean, I'd love to be able to plan things out, but it just doesn't seem to work that way. Even trying to get a rough one-page synopsis of what I, what I want the story to be, it's generally one line, and that was it. I had no idea who was going to do what, but as I wrote the story, it sort of came to life and some of the characters did things they weren't supposed to do and one of the, one of the people I had pegged to be the bad guy turned out saving the day and just, yeah, it was... It was really frustrating and terrifying, but it, I was glad I was able to do it. So You've got to trust um, yourself by the sound you, of it. Yeah, do. I think I've, I'm at the stage now where I've learnt that I do have some idea of what I'm doing and I do need to just trust myself and I can always go back and fix it later. But if I stop and wait for the inspiration, nothing's going to happen. If someone's listening and they've got a bookish kid on, on a farm, what would you say to them if the kids are interested in that sort of thing? Yeah, encourage it. Because even if, I mean, you don't have to be a writer to be a reader. I mean, as I say, not every reader is a writer, but every writer needs to be a reader um, because you do have to, like I said before, you do have to consume that content to create it. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a good pastime. Like it just holds you in good stead for the rest of life, you know, if, especially if the books are wide. Don't worry about what they're reading. Just make sure they're reading something. I mean, could be, should I, I must have read, I don't know how many Garfield comics and Foot Rock Flats as growing up and, 
it was always a bit sort of, oh, that's that's not reading. That's that's um, you know, they're comics. Well, they're still words. I'm still reading them. It's still a story. It doesn't matter. There's pictures involved, and you know, I still love reading the old Footrot Flats com- Footrot Flats comics. They're brilliant. So, and even audio books or you know. Even stories doesn't matter if it's a. I don't think it matters if it's a movie or a computer game. Like if it's the story and the how it all comes together, it's the important part. Has all this been a dream come true for you, Michael? I wouldn't say it would be a dream come true. I'm very, I'm very happy with where I am at the moment in life, and I'm not sure I would have chosen the path that we took to get here, but. You know, it's 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 everything that I've done up to this point has led me to this point. Like I couldn't have written Wild Dogs without having done what I'd done leading up to here. So everything from working at the boat builders and some passing comment that a crayfisherman made about poor bugger was only making a million dollars this year, he should be carting in these boat people, that stuck in my mind and that sort of played into wild dogs and then, yeah, just people I'd met up on mine sites and stuff, it all, it all accumulated to a thing. But there was, I mean, I don't have any real regrets. There was some very... Dark, well, dark times. It wasn't fun, that's for sure. The, the droughts and the pressure that we were having with the live export thing, and um, but it did all lead me to this point. So I can't change the past. I can just sort of learn from it the best I can and try and keep doing what I'm doing. Michael, thank you. No worries. Thank you very much, Sal. Michael Trant was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sally Sara. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Konamaldi. I'm Bobby McCumber the host of a brand new podcast from ABC Radio Australia called Stories from the Pacific. The tradition of storytelling is such a huge part of life in the Pacific. Stories connect generations. Dad and I really had to learn how to be father and son. Bridge political differences. Sports can be like soft diplomacy. Record histories. It's a repetitive pattern of a man marrying and divorcing and then marrying again, divorcing. And create community. There was never a moment I felt like I didn't have the support system. Stories from the Pacific draws you deep into the lives of Pacific Islanders who have seen and done amazing things. You can find Stories from the Pacific every week on your favourite podcast app or the ABC Pacific website.